Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. I'm your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And we have gathered here today, as we do every couple of weeks, to discuss a poem. We're going to read the poem, talk about the poem, and then read the poem again. In between, we'll delve into all manner of different thoughts and analyses and ideas that come up when we examine the poem. Today's is letter to the person who carved his initials into the oldest living longleaf pine in North America by Matthew Olsman. Um, I got really excited about this poem, not just because I don't think we've done one with a title this long that may in fact be too long for the episode to be titled the way we normally do, um, but yeah. also because it's just a really interesting poem that I happened to come across around when I think it was released uh, in early May of this year. But before we get into that, our usual quick beginning note. If you've got the time, if you've got the inclination, we love ratings and reviews. If you could hop over to the iTunes slash Apple Podcasts zone and give us those five stars, we would be ever so grateful. We currently have 28 ratings and we're hoping to pop past 30 in the near future. You can help us with that mission. So if you are so moved, we would be ever so grateful. And with all that out of the way, on to our poem by Matthew Olsman. Uh, Matthew Olsman was born in Detroit. He was a Kundaman fellow, and his first book, Mezzanines, won the Kundaman Prize. He uh, has been published all over the place, the New England Review. Uh, he was also a fellow at the Kenyan Review Writers Workshop, and he currently teaches at Dartmouth and in the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson. So he's, he's a happening fella. He's a great poet, and he's killing it, and I love this poem, and you got to read it so we can talk about it. <laughs> okay, I'll get down to business. Uh, this poem, I believe, came out for the first time in Tin House in May of this year, um, and it is called Letter to the Person Who Carved His Initials into the Oldest Living Long-Leafed Pine in North America by Matthew Olsman. Tell me what it's like to live without curiosity, without awe, to sail on clear water rolling your eyes at the kelp reefs swaying beneath you, ignoring the flicker of mermaid scales in the mist, looking at the world and feeling only boredom, to stand on the precipice of some wild valley, the eagle circling, a herd of caribou booming below, and to yawn with indifference, to discover something primordial and holy, to have the smell of the earth welcome you to everywhere, to take it all in, and then to reach for your knife. Cool. Hot dog, do I like this poem. Yeah, it's really good. As a side note, if you love long titles, I recommend the great poet James Wright, who is the seminal long titler in which he's like, I'm lying in a hammock in this part of Minnesota in this time of year while I'm thinking about something else or whatever as a cock crows in the morning. I love it, and I love long titles. And long titles are so fun. They, it's really interesting because short titles kind of do a framing by, it's like the theme kind of framing. Oftentimes it's maybe oblique, but it's thinking about like the deeper stuff, so... You know, like the poem Private Property that we talked about by Jenny Shia, 
private property was kind of like the deep kind of subject of the poem and the short title sort of helps us like orient toward thinking being mindful of that while we're reading the poem the long title is like in some ways the opposite where because one of the problems with poetry is uh exposition narrative and like those kinds of sort of like literal situating is often a little hard um or to do so gracefully so the long title like this one is like okay this is exactly what is being talked about physically like we're giving you all the exposition you need in the title and now that the poem has begun, I can go off and run into the wild valley and not have to worry about like clarifying this or that. That's a great point. And it's so true of this poem because there are long titles that kind of just circuitously lead you into the poem, not necessarily expositionally, but in the same way that a poem might have its first lines draw you in somehow. There are longer titles that don't take such an expositional turn, but very often, I think you're right, that is the purpose they serve, and it's definitely what's happening here, because this tells you that what you're about to read is a letter, who that letter is addressed to, and what that letter is concerning. Like, your three big chunks of information are just laid straight out for you, which I appreciate. The longleaf pine, the oldest one, I think is nearly 470 years old. Um, oh, yeah. Pretty old. Shit was about to get real dark in America when this uh, tree started growing. No, it's very true. And it is an interesting place to start because if it's 470 years old, did a little quick math on that, that means that it started growing in or around 1549. So that's 227 years before the founding of the United States of America. None of Shakespeare had been written and wouldn't be written for a number of years. It was barely more than 30 years after Luther penned his... 95 theses in 1517 like the big news of the time is the printing press is happening and the reformation is happening in europe at the time that this tree starts growing it's like a huge long time ago i did a little research apparently 1549 was called the year of the many-headed monster because there were so many different rebellions and uprisings on the continent of europe Um, Also, a pope died that that year, so there was a new pope. (laughs) I'm always interested in papal history, so that one was fun for me. (laughs) Uh, No, it's true. It's like, it's interesting because it's kind of in the broad swath of history in terms of eras, this tree started growing like kind of around, I feel like we're at, well, we're at the end of the era that began not too far from when this tree started growing. Uh, so that's, it's just been hanging out for all of that, which is interesting. It is. Um, yeah, and just to, it was great. We did like a full summary play by play of the title because it's so long. Um, <laughs> Maybe we should do the same for the poem at some point. Yeah, we could think about it. Um, in some ways, it's pretty straightforward in terms of 
the most basic um, what's going on, which is like the speaker is addressing this person who has carved his name into the tree and basically is like, what is it like to basically not give a shit about nature? Uh, and kind of keeps providing examples of beautiful and kind of awe-inspiring nature while then being like, and you're just like rolling your eyes. Um, and that's kind of like, and that just sort of like continues and gets more like amped up by the end of the poem. It does the ramp up and crash down, basically. Because it, yeah. it does, it, it keeps basically building evidence to how cool and interesting nature is. And then the accusation towards this individual, which is hinted at in the title, because you feel like you don't write a letter to this person out of charity is just the tone that title sets, even though it doesn't specifically say letter to the person, parentheses, asshole, who carved his initials into the oldest longleaf pine in North America, second parentheses, like a big asshole, close parentheses. That's like so heavily implied somehow just in the statement that this, that like Matthew Olsman theoretically as the speaker is motivated to write this letter to them, you just feel, you can tell he's not going to be like, oh, yeah, sick carving, brah, love that you did that. That was super cool. It's like the specificity about it being the oldest living longleaf pine. Like, this is a living entity that you have attacked by carving your initials in it. Yeah. I think the specific addition that it is the oldest living longleaf pine is like, hey, uh, you fucked up. <laughs> and I don't care for it, sir. That then is like borne out in the poem through this constant addition of different types of nature that actually culminates. There's the very, you know, clear water, kelp reefs, mermaid scales, which I think we'll come back to because that's sort of beyond nature in a way. Um, wild valley, eagles circling, caribou booming. But then it starts to get into this more generalized primordial and holy and then it comes to encompass the whole planet with the smell of the earth, which is referencing the dirt that is there, theoretically. But also the choice to say smell of the earth is also putting you in this global frame of mind because it, go, it says to have the smell of the earth welcome you to everywhere. It's so expansive. Um, and we've talked about a couple of poems that do this sort of thing where they build evidence towards a certain viewpoint or they build a feeling to a crescendo and then in this case literally with a knife just cut it down to take it all in and then to reach for your knife they're like oh this is so cool this is amazing like what if i owned this tree a little bit <laughs> what if this was mine in some way what if i put my mark on it like an asshole <laughs> <laughs> you know i just yeah it's so great and it's yeah um what's it's great that like there's also this great contrast of as you were saying the the you know total expansiveness of the end that the speaker has like sort of built up to and then the truly both like figurative and literal smallness of the 
this person being addressed like you're just getting your knife and carving your little like two letters of your name um which a is like um it's interesting because uh on the one hand it's like so narcissistic and for a second i was i've been thinking about like I don't know. There's a lot of ways that people talk about nature that are problematic. Um, obviously, problematic is the kind of like nature is our dominion to conquer and like control, it, which is sort of this guy is doing in a little sense. But then there's sort of the flip side where there's this like you know, pure nature, like, I don't know, serene, like, you know, prelapsarian, like before humans got all, you know, fucked it all up, basically. Um, and it's especially interesting because where it gets super problematic in certain ways is like when thinking about indigenous peoples, it's often the word indigenous actually is like from nature is like what the word means or from the earth. Um, and there's this whole like well-meaning quote unquote, but like idea that indigenous peoples are like uh, the, the humans before the fall and who lived like harmoniously with nature, whatever, um, which I recently learned People in the Amazon for thousands of years were, scientists actually think, have basically been cultivating the Amazon um, and, like, managing it rather than just, like, you know, skipping around, you just, you know, um, not having an impact, which I think is, like, such a important, like, distinction um, to say there's actually always been like pretty deliberate interactions between humans and nature. It's just like the current way we're doing it is so crazy. But, and I was worried for a second with this poem just cause I was thinking about that, not cause it was necessarily in the poem, but why I liked the fact that it was focused on these initials is like, it wasn't just like, you don't appreciate the grandeur around you. It's like, you're just so, you just see yourself and like the, the ego and like the individual self is like seen as more so kind of noteworthy than like all of nature. I don't know. And that just seemed like in a, a way, a kind of, subtle way that the poem like manages both to evoke like intense grandeur and beauty of the natural world without like falling into I think some kind of like romantic fetishization of nature if that makes sense absolutely and I think that's such an important point because the effect of indigenous peoples on various ecosystems and environments has been increasingly well documented, particularly on islands like New Zealand or Australia or Ireland, 
the massive impact that the simple presence of humans had and the destructive impact that the presence of human settlements, particularly homo sapiens with big brains who could alter their environments, even before any notion of industry, we were a destructive invasive species. And there is this element of humanity, which I think is something interesting about this poem, because along with the anger motivating it, there is a sincere curiosity about what are this person's motivations. And there is a sense that there is something about what this person did that is a deeply human reaction. Bad, maybe, in the world of the poem, and I would personally posit in my view of the world, um, <laughs> but there is something in our species that does this ownership, order, destruction, reshaping in the human image of our environment, at least for like modern humans. Um, and I think that's something that also lends an extra power to this poem and makes it really interesting because, you know, I kind of have this question too for somebody who does this. There was a video that came out a couple years ago. I don't know if you remember this of like I don't remember if it was a Boy Scout troop or something, but leaders of the troop were knocking over stone monuments in a national park, and they got in big trouble for it. But basically, it was very similar to this. They, like, saw these stones and thought that they'd be cool to crash over. Like, that would be kind of <laughs> neat. And it is this, like, nature is our playground sense of ownership and destruction, and I don't really personally have a conduit to that way of being in the world. And so it fascinates me in the same kind of, I, I feel like a similar kind of angry fascination roiling underneath this poem, even when it's describing all this beautiful nature. It begins, tell me what it's like. Like, it's an ask. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And... I think that's like such a good point. It makes me think like, you know, for myself, you know, defacing a historic tree is like, seems pretty bad. Um, as, as our great Mark Zuckerberg said, lying is bad. So uh, carving, carving one's initials into a tree is bad. Um, but were that to happen on Facebook, it would be fine. It wouldn't, you know. Um, How could you possibly control such a thing? <laughs> Who knows? We have an outside firm for that, so I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> Apparently. Oh, my God. So crazy. Um, but I can see a kind of contemporary analog. I mean, obviously, this is happening in the present. But, like, you know, uh, and I participate in this. But, you know, the kind of, like, Instagram traveling taking pictures like i love pictures but there is this kind of like you don't you're you know there's like the stereotypical person who like doesn't even really experience the place that they're in because they're just taking pictures of the place basically um and then it also makes me think of like sort of and this is more broad i don't really know that the validity, but like, like tourism and ecotourism, even like generally, is this kind of like, um, 
like it's interesting because ecotourism, you know, in like probably all over the world, but I I was learning about um, in Central America, there's actually like a kind of violence in the the cultivation of ecotourism oftentimes because basically the state is like, okay, we need to have this land to be like pristine and pretty so that when the tourists come and like, you know, da da da. But then it's sort of a, you know, it's another way of dispossessing like indigenous peoples and local people from the land because suddenly, you know, the their way of living on the land you know, is is considered like illegal and not okay. Um, and there's a classic thing of like, uh, someone had said, I forget who, but like, you know, I could chop down a tree and like I'll get arrested or like maybe even killed. Um, but then some company is just gonna like bulldoze like literally acres of forest and that would be chill. Um, but it's kind of like ecotourism and that whole thing is this, this kind of marking of natural world as like our own and kind of, um, I don't know. It's, it's, there's differences between the three, but I do think there's like, it's this specific action. I think I, I'm like with the poet, but then I also see myself kind of doing like maybe more benign versions, but like analogous things, uh, you know, in my daily life. It's almost like how, uh, progressives categorize neoliberalism. It's like this gentle version of a darker kind of violence. Like it's doing all of the things, but under this veneer of progress or positivity. So like ecotourism, it seems good. It's like you give your money and you go and see these wonders. You're inspired to do more good. But at the same time, to participate in that, you have to be deeply ingrained in a version of capitalism you might not agree with. You have to be deeply ingrained in a certain travel industry that works off of the fossil fuel industry and you're perpetuating all this other stuff that goes along with your theoretically beneficial or altruistic work. Yeah, whoa, I agree. I was actually just listening to another great, this is my Ezra Klein plug podcast, who I, anyway, uh, he had Wendy Brown and this other guy that I forget, but to talk about neoliberalism specifically. And one thing that Wendy Brown, who's a, like a great scholar on um, the subject, is kind of like one of the projects of neoliberalism as um, basically shifting the role of the state to uh, be a sculptor of the market uh, rather than like you know, providing a welfare state or something. She said something like, there's no society in a neoliberal world. It's just individual economic subjects. 
like everyone is just wandering around as an individual economic subject trying to like increase their capital worth in various ways. Um, which does bring me back to it's, I mean, this poem hasn't gotten into like uh, explicit capitalist critique, but the individualism of the, the carving feels important. Definitely. And I think in what we're describing, if you'll pardon this quasi-extended metaphor, mm-hmm. um, I think what we're talking about are ways in which a knife carving initials could be held by an invisible hand. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Um, which is sort of my shameless callback. But at the same time, I think that is a little bit what we're talking about, where it's like, maybe I am not going out and carving my name on this tree, but like I drove a car for years and the carbon dioxide from that was pretty shitty for this tree. What this poem gets at, and I think probably part of what motivates this not to just be a screed and an actual question is probably a feeling on the part of Matthew Olsman that maybe you recognize a little bit of yourself, not necessarily in the act of carving the initials, but that there is something there that is much bigger than just somebody who will do that more extreme level of violence to something that feels primordial and holy, as the poem says. Like, it doesn't have to be the oldest living longleaf pine for somebody to carve their initials in a tree. Like, this is a really extreme iteration of something that we see way more often. People carve their initials in park benches. Like, that's an act or doing, you know, painting on trees or in national parks or whatever. Like, there are much less extreme versions of doing this that we are all engaged in. And I think kind of what we're getting at is the ways in which you can passively be deeply involved in something that is adjacent to this, like doing violence to nature. The reader is not unimplicated to a degree in this poem. And I think that is something that exists one or two levels beneath like the surface way you could read this, but which is very important and is part of what lends it its power. Yeah, totally. And the fact that, you know, the poem as an address and like a letter and the the fact that that requires it to be this you like you know i mean this is kind of the great sort of the basic like exciting aspect of you know using the second person is like ostensibly the speaker is talking to this guy who did the carving but you're the reader and like when the words hit you they're talking to you um so there's also this moment where you know it's not like the speaker's like hey see that like chump over there with his little knife get a little of that guy um it's like hey you what's up the poem is is interesting because on the one hand it has this which we sort of talked around like pretty like elegant but simple you know simple structure that kind of like propels the poem which is this kind of um like start with and this is a crude way of putting it but like amazing thing about nature and then you are apathetic so you know you have like to sail on clear water rolling your eyes um 
you know, like mermaid scales in the mist, feeling only boredom, to stand on the precipice and to yawn with indifference. Um, so that's kind of like, I think, like the basic engine of the poem. Um, and then it's great, the sort of like anaphora or the, you know, the repetition of the two at the beginning of a lot of the sentences, um, you know, to sail on clear water, to stand on the precipice, to yawn with indifference, to discover something primordial, to have a smell, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those kind of like moments really get you going. Um, but then it's like interesting because what I kind of immediately started thinking about, which I actually don't know where I fall on this, but it's like, okay, so they're, they're each kind of sentence or like structure has these two categories, like great nature, apathy, dude. Um, and they're the same categories for the whole poem. But then it's like, you know, why is the poem like, or not even why, but like, how does the poem, the fact that the, the attention is on kelp reefs, um, that there's a flicker of mermaid scales, you know, that like you're on the precipice, you know, the edge of a wild valley and there's, you know, caribou booming, um, you know, those are like, you know, specific concrete images and they, you know, they evoke like each one evokes something different than the other, even if they're kind of like participating in the same, like, you know, basic this than that structure. So yeah, I was wondering where you came down on all of it. Um, one thing maybe to start at the end, just cause I loved, I just love the line to have the smell of the earth welcome you to everywhere. For some reason, the two in that, like, welcome you to everywhere is, like, so beautiful. Um, and it has the two in there to repeat, like, as a repetition, but it's in, like, a different part of the sentence, so it almost floats by. Like, a, a lesser poem would just say to have the smell of the earth, you know, welcome you. But it's actually this, like, kind of, like generous like gesture toward everything like behold like I can I'll invite you in um it's very I don't know um and that that seemed like really cool like really and different in the sense that the earth is like sort of personified where it's doing a welcoming thing whereas the caribou are just running around booming um they don't have a relation to you. So I can see like where that one ends up, but I was just curious. And you mentioned like the mermaid scales. That was kind of like, that's a standout. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious what you thought about the kind of choice of images and all that. I totally agree. That structure in the poem does make it really clean reading. Um, And yeah, as we pointed out, like the mermaids stand out a little bit as sort of uh, beyond the regular natural world. It's sort of, you know, what's your capacity for for wonder? What are the bounds of it? 
Um, I love that you brought out that last little part about the smell of the earth welcomes you to every or to have the smell of the earth welcome you to everywhere because that line actually put me in mind of the one part of wild geese where she says whoever you are no matter how lonely the world offers itself to your imagination and it felt like something similar was going on in welcome you to everywhere because it's this combination of unconditional and because of that, empowering. So it feels like you're welcomed to all of the bounty that has come before in the poem. Every good thing it mentioned, like the earth is saying, go for it. And your reaction is not nurturing or cultivating in the poem. It is you take it all in and then you reach for your knife. So there is this really vulnerable moment on the part of nature saying, essentially, I'm yours. And this is what you do with it. I feel like that juxtaposition is really strong. But also, right at the end, I actually think that one-to-one structure breaks down and becomes two-and-a-half-to-one. Throughout the whole poem, as you were saying, there's a good thing about nature and then a bored response. But what you have here is two positive sentences. To discover something primordial and holy. Period. To have the smell of the earth welcome you to everywhere. That's too positive. To take it all in. That's another half of a sentence that's positive. And then, uh-oh, now you're not <laughs> bored anymore. The response to those two and a half good things is now more extreme than boredom. It's an act of retaliatory violence. Wow. So not yeah. only do you have the amping up of all of the sort of imagery and emotions, you also have an amping up of that structure that we've been programmed to feel of, oh, you sail on clear water, rolling your eyes at the kelp reef, swaying beneath you, ignoring the flicker of mermaid scales in the mist, looking at the world and feeling boredom. To stand on the precipice of some wild valley, the eagle circling, a herd of caribou booming below, and to yawn with indifference. Yeah, I love that. It's kind of like, you know, um... I feel like in music, there's sort of patterns that they like establish in the beginning, and then they kind of make you wait for it, like to come back at the end. And they're like, all right, we'll keep pushing the first part and then we'll give it to you, but you know, it's, you're going to wait. And that's actually like an interesting kind of suspense that has nothing to do with narrative or anything. But I think you're totally right that. It's interesting that that's when, yeah, I love to react with retaliatory violence. Um, Because, of course, then it's like there's many ways to render carving, uh, you know, someone's initials. Like the poem could end like, and then you make your mark or like, and then, you know, you're thinking about your name or then you look at blah 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 not that those would be good endings but you reach for your knife like uh it's the knife that the speaker is thinking about um you know it's the cutting because of the expanding nature of it i could see someone's like okay i'm seeing the herds of caribou they're booming okay what's the next thing like give me some mermaid scales give me some kelp. Um, 
And that can provoke boredom because like what you're experiencing is not yet complete or something. But there's this real sense, you know, like to have the smell of the earth welcome you to everywhere, to take it all in, um, you know, something primordial. There's something like, as you were saying, like complete, like that this, this person is feeling. And there's, you can't be bored anymore because it's like over in a way. Or it's, it's like now you can do something because it's welcomed you in. Do you have any other thoughts? I had one final thought. Yeah, this poem in some ways feels a little bit like an intervention on the part of the poet with this person kind of forcing them to articulate why they did something that maybe was unthinking for them. Because there is this sense of apathy that goes along with a lot of the actions, and it culminates in this act of violence, but I think on one level the poem could be read as a critique of the violent ends of certain types of apathy. Stoking that is a cultural orientation towards the natural world that can build up of like, eh, you've seen one tree, you've seen a million, like who cares if this is the <laughs> oldest one, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think there's also going along with that, and I'm not saying that this is what creates this kind of behavior, but I think this is something that could be the well that Olsman is dipping into in reference when he's talking about this kind of violence in nature is that there is a fairly deep literary history of characters who have this kind of relationship to nature. Probably the most immediate and classic one you would think of is Ahab in Moby Dick, who's out to kill the white whale. His fanaticism is literally rendered as enacting violence towards uh, what a lot of literary theorists have termed the biblical Leviathan, and it becomes emblematic of man's final mastery over mysteries of the deep. Um, but in a more contemporary iteration, there is the judge in Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, who is this really weird distillation of a whole bunch of different ideas and tropes and becomes this contradictory site of meaning <laughs> who sort of roams around the West doing incredible violence and is also described as being light on his feet and having an incredible intellect. And he holds forth at great length using almost because that's how McCarthy writes biblical language. Um, and he also habitually draws pictures and is kind of this very violent embodiment of law and order and science being imposed on a natural world. And he talks about that a little bit. Um, and one portion that I thought of as relates to this is where he talks about war as relates to humanity, just because sort of as I touched on earlier, just the idea that the impulse that drives the person to do this in the poem is a natural human one on some level. And the judge says, before man was, war waited for him, the ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. That is the way it was and will be, that way and not some other way. So it's this combination of really terrifying pronouncement and then like doubling down on the kind of almost prophetic He's saying this is the way it was and will be, but it almost sounds like I declare this is the way it was and will be. And because my word is the law, so it shall be, uh, I feel like is is present there as well. And that was, I think, part of what inspired me to pick this poem is just it felt like it was playing in that very deep 
cultural well and like examination of a certain dark corner of the human spirit well <laughs> that I thought was interesting beyond its descriptions of nature and its engagement with that I felt like it also took seriously the darker side um, because there is as I kind of touched on earlier I feel like there's a real sincerity as critical as this poem is in wondering like what drives people to do that um, and yeah. I feel like the character of the judge is a little bit putting a lot of those ideas and giving them form and flesh and making this really terrifying character who does despicable things but still presents his like loving music and has these intellectual conversations and all these ideas. It's, it's that juxtaposition that I feel like is going on a little bit in this poem too because this poem I think is in many ways just a very, very elegant middle finger. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it for sure is. Should we uh, read it again? I think we should read it again. This is Letter to the Person Who Carved His Initials into the Oldest Living Longleaf Pine in North America by Matthew Olsman. Tell me what it's like to live without curiosity, without awe, to sail on clear water, rolling your eyes at the kelp reefs swaying beneath you, ignoring the flicker of mermaid scales in the mist, looking at the world and feeling only boredom. To stand on the precipice of some wild valley, the eagles circling, a herd of caribou booming below, and to yawn with indifference. To discover something primordial and holy, to have the smell of the earth welcome you to everywhere, to take it all in, and then to reach for your knife. Hey everybody, this is Jack again. Thank you so much for listening. This is the part of the show where we tell you all the different ways you can get in touch with us because we love to hear from you. If you have ideas for future episodes, comments on this or any of our past episodes, different readings of poems than the ones that we offered, we want to hear it. Uh, the fastest and easiest way to get in touch with us is on Twitter. The show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn and Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. You can also get in touch with us via email if you have lengthier thoughts. Our email address is closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. And of course, the very best way to stay up to date on the latest close talking happenings is to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Uh, we're also available, in addition to iTunes, on Stitcher and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.